Oh, haven't you heard? It's, it's the Illuminati. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. This episode is going to be the first of a two-part series dealing with uh, cryptocurrency, mostly Bitcoin, but you'll hear we chat about some others. Uh, this episode is good for the standard round of continuing education credits, although be careful if you're in one of the jurisdictions that places a limit on how many investment-related credits you can get. You have to make sure you're also getting your insurance credits along the way. We'll be in the pre-approved jurisdictions, approved for credits in Alberta for life insurance only. It will be a financial planning credit with FP Canada, which curiously, with the body of knowledge, actually added an understanding of digital currency, as, as I recall, is what they call it in the body of knowledge. So this is now uh, examinable content for those going through the uh, core curriculum, although certainly not to the depth that Mike and I go into here. And we'll also have this approved with Advocates for an IAS credit and with IROC for a professional development credit. Okay, I hadn't really intended on this uh, interview going to uh, full episodes, but that's what happened. Mike and I chatted for almost an hour and a half about uh, cryptocurrency, and I thought, should I break it up into uh, two episodes or just have one very long? And I thought, no, we'll keep with our series of one-hour episodes. I'm curious to know what people think about these multi-part ones. This will be uh, our second multi-part back in season one, if I recall correctly, we had Ray on, and we talked about incorporation over two parts. So this would be the second go at this, and let me know what you think of it. The color for today's episode is yellow. The color for today's episode is yellow. And I'll just talk about my audio quality on this one a little bit. Mike's audio quality is just fine. Mine is quite echoey. I actually recorded this episode while I was in the midst of renovating my office, and I had a lot of exposed wood in here at the time. I did try to manage it a little bit. You'll still hear some of that echo. I'm waiting on some sound baffles right now. They're uh, a little bit delayed. I don't know if that's a COVID thing or what have you, but uh, yeah, I do have some sound baffles coming in. So my apologies for those that are listening to this and have a little bit of echo. I know Joe will do his best to clean it up, but uh, it's uh, hard to do when there's this quantity of it. When uh, when we get into the interview here, you're going to hear a lot of talk about various types of technology, although I think Mike does a good job of keeping this to a level for somebody who does not have a strong technical background, as I don't. Uh, he is very uh, computer savvy, 
and knows a lot of the uh, sort of inner workings of systems and so forth. And that does not show up here. He does a good job of this sort of, if you understand something well enough, you can explain it in uh, layman's terms, even when sometimes layman's terms aren't the most accurate way maybe to explain it. But I think he does a good job of bringing some fairly difficult concepts into a way that at least I was able to understand them. Now, before we get into the interview, I want to take a few minutes to talk about fiat currency. And this is often what we see compared to cryptocurrencies or digital currencies. Now, there's a whole complex history of fiat currency here. Uh, really, to understand this, we can go back to the days of a, a gold or silver standard. That's been sort of the historical norms, is that a country would gather gold or silver in vaults somewhere. And even precursor to that, you would have gold or silver actually comprising the currency. But let's go with gold or silver is gathered in a, in a vault somewhere, uh, a la Fort Knox in the James Bond movies or that kind of thing, where you have Goldfinger, if I remember correctly. But anyways, where you have that physical store of gold or silver, and that represents your ability to issue currency. And there's two different versions of this history. It uh, doesn't really matter today, but a lot of people will point to either the uh, sort of late 1920s or the late 1960s as the end of the gold standard and any sort of related systems. And this is where we see governments now have the ability to essentially, to some extent anyways, manage their own currency supply. And we see some governments that are very aggressive in this and some governments that take more of a hands-off approach. We do see the potential negative consequences of this. There's the famous examples with George Soros and both the Asian Tigers and his battle with the Bank of England. In both cases, we had somebody who recognized an arbitrage opportunity with uh, mismanaged currency and took advantage of it and really profited substantially and at the expense of those countries and potentially their economies as well. So that's one of the areas where we sometimes see folks who like cryptocurrency, they say one of the things that happens here is you potentially take the risk off the table that central bankers who are not omniscient and who are not all-powerful uh, you take the risk off the table here that those central bankers don't know what they're doing and cause harm to an economy. Another area that we see here with the central management of currencies is, of course, something we've seen a lot of and gets a lot of press really all the way back to uh, 2007-2008 with the credit crisis is that we see central bankers issuing currency. That's a little bit of a difficult concept, that idea of issuing currency. But effectively, what we have here is this idea that through various mechanisms, uh, our central bankers put more currency in circulation. That does not mean printing bills and putting them in people's pockets. This is usually done either through changes to how banks are regulated. Uh, banks really being the, the primary providers of dollars to consumers and businesses and so forth. Or uh, this can also be in how we acquire uh, government assets. So uh, central banks will issue securities 
and then the rate at which central banks buy back those securities uh, results in changes to the, the amount of currency in circulation. It, it, this is quite a complicated uh, system, and almost every explanation I hear about this uh, disagrees with some other explanation, which is why I don't really want to go down the path of offering uh, my own explanation, which honestly is probably not that good. I'm not an economist. I never did any formal training in economics. But the thing to recognize here is that people who sort of live in the cryptocurrency world will often call into doubt the validity of what we call fiat currency. So fiat currency simply means that we give that currency value by fiat, by declaration. And that fiat currency only has value as long as we all agree that it has value. Now, I would suggest that that's true of pretty much anything. I know a lot of people talk about the intrinsic value of gold, and while it's true that gold does have some commercial applications, I would still suggest that in the end, gold only has value because it's this shiny metal that we've all sort of agreed. Uh, it looks good in various, let's say, aesthetic applications. If you look at the original days of gold, yes, it did have some utility in that it's very malleable, easy to uh, transport. Um, it does give a degree of fungibility, which Mike talks about in the interview here. However, I would suggest that it's not because of all those features, not because of its sort of commercial applications that gold has value. It has value because we've agreed on it. So we might consider the gold bugs or the uh, folks who really adhere to gold as having value. And some people do the same with silver. And I don't want to make a distinction here, although I know some people will make that distinction. But I know that people who ascribe a lot of value to gold will say something like it's a, an effective hedge against inflation. Uh, the evidence doesn't really support that. And what we see over history with gold is that it has not always had that character. Now, if you're going to be a gold investor, and we're going to talk about using Bitcoin this way a little bit in the next episode, but if you're going to be a gold investor, essentially what you're saying is, I want to have this asset that will retain value no matter what and potentially could grow in value if other assets are declining in value. So people talk about gold as having a real value or maintaining its value through inflation. And I think there is some relation between that attitude towards gold and how some people view cryptocurrencies. And one of the considerations with gold is that there's a, a physical cost to store it. If you're going to go and acquire gold, you'll actually have gold in your possession. That means that you have to store it somewhere. There's going to be a cost of storage and a cost of insurance. With physical wealth like that, there's always the risk of loss. If somebody were to break into the premises where your gold is stored, it's at risk that way. And it doesn't generate any income. There's no dividend or interest to be earned for holding gold. And you really have to accept there's that cost then if you're going to hold an asset like that. And again, I would suggest it's much the same with cryptocurrency. If you're going to hold it, at least as of today, there's not a meaningful way to generate income from holding that uh, cryptocurrency. 
Uh, there can be a cost of holding it. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Mike touches on it in the uh, second episode, although that cost is negligible depending on how you actually hold it. I've held some cryptocurrency myself for several years now, and I've had no cost to doing that, just minor, minor transaction costs paid to an exchange when you buy and sell. I hope that helps to sort of position where fiat currency and gold and silver sit here. And now let's hear about the history of Bitcoin and some of the history of other cryptocurrencies and some of the technology that we hear about when we hear about these tools. Hi, we're joined today by Mike Alguire. Mike is actually an old friend of mine from our days in the Army Reserve. And uh, Mike reached out to me recently and said, hey, I'd like to uh, chat with some of your students about uh, cryptocurrency. And it's something we haven't talked about at all on the podcast. It's certainly something I get a lot of questions about in class. And some of those questions are on the, uh, the list of questions that I've uh, provided to Mike. Mike, can you give us a little background about what you're doing, what your involvement with cryptocurrency is today? Sure. Um, so uh, as, as you know, I, I started uh, a career in, in IT and specifically in cybersecurity. And because of that, I was probably more interested than most when this cryptocurrency thing started around 2009. And so I've been following it ever since and keenly interested in how it how it all works. And now that Bitcoin is uh, so much in the news uh, and Ethereum, um, I've been doing some consulting, uh, helping people understand what cryptocurrency is, crypto assets, what they are, how they work, and basically what the future is going to look like, in, in my opinion, when these technologies take hold in society. Because there's still, they're still quite a fringe sort of element to them, but they are starting to, starting to catch mainstream attention. And um, I, I think there's a big, a big future here. And understanding what these things are and how they're going to shape that future, I think, is very important. When you talk about consulting, what would be a consulting client? You're like other cybersecurity folks or Yeah. So most of most of the folks that that I talk to, like for example, or give talks with are um, industry uh, groups. So for example, there's a group called ISACA, which is uh, a group of uh, auditors, financial auditors. So of course they're keenly interested uh, in these sort of topics. I have a background in auditing in IT. And so um, that that sort of group of people is is the type that are that are keenly interested in this kind of stuff. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so can you just start with the uh, the very basic question here? What is cryptocurrency? And maybe that's not a basic question. Uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's that's the million dollar uh, basic question. I'll try and simplify it as as much as I can because cryptocurrency is a lot of things to a lot of people. But most importantly, in order to sort of be a currency, it has to tick a number of boxes. So one of those boxes is a medium of, of exchange, meaning that you need to be able to exchange it with other people for other things. And, and that sounds very basic, of course. <laughs> but um, you know, when, when you get through a few of these basic boxes, you'll see that you need all of them in order to actually have a viable product or cryptocurrency. So it needs to be a medium of exchange and it needs to be fungible. Um, and for those not familiar, fungible just means that 
any one is as good as any other one. So like a dollar bill, like a bar of gold, I don't care which physical one I have, they're all of equal value and they can be equally traded and exchanged. None is a little better or a little worse uh, than the others. It also needs to be secure. And that's something that, that's really key to this whole cryptocurrency thing because security has been baked in to other forms, other medium of, of exchange, other stores of value in the past. So with, with gold, you've, of course, secured it physically. All of your security problems were physical problems, generally, um, with gold. Uh, when it comes to things like uh, banknotes or, or dollars and whatnot, uh, there is a whole security apparatus behind those as well to ensure that there's no counterfeiting, that there's not a trillion other extra ones that just sort of appear in the middle of the night uh, and devalue the rest of them, um, for example. Uh, so you need, you need it to be a medium of exchange, fungible. It needs to be secure. Something that people worry about with cryptocurrencies as well is a problem they call the double spend problem which is a, a real thing in the digital world because uh, anyone who has access to most digital things can spend, use, watch them multiple times, share them with multiple people. This is something you'll hear me say later on. Um, there's no digital scarcity. And a cryptocurrency brings digital scarcity to the digital environment, which we haven't had before. So that's, that's very new, but it's very, very important. When Napster came out and people were sharing music files, for example, um, music used to be fairly scarce, i.e. you could only get it on, you know, there was CDs and, and whatnot, and there were ways around it, but it wasn't very easy to, to share. But as soon as peer-to-peer um, -peer networking became available, you had Napster, you know, your copy of the song could be produced into 20 trillion copies of the song, and everyone had them and they were pretty much free. So we, we lost scarcity in those and, and we've never had it in the digital realm. And that is what cryptocurrency is and is bringing, meaning you cannot copy, and we'll probably talk mostly about Bitcoin, I'm assuming, <laughs> but you cannot copy a Bitcoin. You cannot fake one, you cannot counterfeit one, you cannot print a trillion of them. Um, and that's, that's key. And, and then the last thing is uh, store of value. So you have to be sure, like with a bar of gold, you're pretty confident that it's going to have pretty much the same value, you know, tomorrow as it has today, as it will have 50 years from now. Fiat currencies, monies is not as sure because there's all kinds of other things that go into it. The government could choose to print more. Um, we have inflation, right? So it's, it's less secure. But in order for a cryptocurrency to be viable, it needs to also have that same power, that same store of value. And that comes from the security. Anyway, sorry, I think I talked around a pretty big circle there. But to answer your question, what is a cryptocurrency? It's kind of a conglomeration of all those things, if it's done right. <laughs> and as I understand it, you know, you talk about that, creating that digital scarcity, making sure it can't be duplicated. That really comes from the blockchain. Do I, in most cases, I know not all cryptocurrency are based on the blockchain, but is that a fair summary? So yes, it is, but it's an oversimplification. Um, and it's kind of caught on, I think, in the media. Um, and maybe we'll discuss this later because I think one of your questions is, what is blockchain? Um, and I have a whole rant that I want to go on when I get there. But, <laughs> but, but you're correct. Um, you know, it, the blockchain is one of the elements that ensures digital scarcity. 
Um, but it is not the only element. And if it was a percentage wise, you, I'd call that 30% of the whole pie that ensures digital scarcity. So what else, what gives you the other 70% then? This is actually leading into that next question. And let's, let's, let's go there now. Because <laughs> what, what, um, what people need to understand about Bitcoin <clears throat> is that it is a group of technologies. It is not a single technology. The invention, if you can call it that, of Bitcoin was not a singular event invention of a, of a single object. The invention of Bitcoin was the amalgamation of four or five other technologies that had been around historically. And blockchain or the, the sort of... Um, uh, a hashing chain, what before the, the term blockchain was um, was coined, has been around for a number of years and well before Bitcoin. So a chain of hashes, which is what a blockchain is, in um, is nothing novel. Um, Bitcoin itself is taking that blockchain chain of hashes technology, combining it with proof of work, which you've probably heard of before, technology, which had also been around historically and used in a number of other things. Combine that with digital signatures and um, public and private, public key encryption, it's basically called, um, as well as um, signatures. I'm just trying to like off the top of my head, go through, you know, the things, but so let's let's leave it at that. It's, it's those four or five <clears throat> technologies put together in such a way as to create something new, which is Bitcoin. And that creates digital scarcity, which never existed with any of those singular technologies before. So can you talk a little bit about the chain of hashes then? I think that's probably the concept that's the most difficult out of all of those. Yeah, I, I was thinking uh, last night about how to, what a, a good way to sort of make it because I'm sure, you know, the folks who listen to your podcast have probably, you know, seen a few videos. I mean, they've seen the pictures, right? It's a little block with, it's linked to other blocks. Um, if you need, but if you truly want to understand what a blockchain is, you have to understand or take into account what is called hashing or a hashing algorithm. And if you don't understand that, then a blockchain will just be a picture in your mind. So essentially, I... Hashing is is almost if if you don't have the time or attention to dive into the math behind it, it just think of it as a bit of magic. <laughs> but it is magic that is backed up by math and can be proven mathematically. So if if you if you want to go down that rabbit hole, um, it's there. It's there for you to discover. But if you just want to understand what a blockchain is. Um, what you need to do is uh, suspend your disbelief for a second and um, accept what I'm going to tell you a hash value is. What a hash value does is it takes any length of input. So one word or war and peace, it doesn't matter. Any length of input, which in computer terms always goes down to ones and zeros, right? So a, a big span of ones and zeros, a hashing algorithm takes all those ones and zeros in one at a time and transforms it mathematically. And as it's transforming it mathematically and going through it, you know, systematically from start to finish, it ends up with a result. And, and that result is always a fixed length 
um, string of bits, um, 32 bits or you know however many bits. And every time a new one or a new zero comes into the algorithm, that fixed string changes completely, right? It doesn't just update by one or, or whatever. It completely transforms. The next bit comes in, it completely transforms. So what you have is something that looks at all this input and when it's finished, it has a single string of bits that is completely random. And the, and the magic here is that it's like a trap door. It, it can only go one way easily. So you cannot take that little string of bits at the end and extrapolate back, oh yeah, this is this is this will give you war and peace. Unless you've unless you've done it, right? If you've pushed war and peace through it, you get that bits, you know that that string of bits is war and peace. Now, 10 years from now, if somebody else runs the exact same war and peace through it, they'll get the exact same result. But if you have never shared with anybody that this result is war and peace then there is no way for them to know other than to run it through themselves. So if, if, if you understand that as being hashing, what's happening with a blockchain is each of those blocks, which are really just all the transactions that took place on, on the ledger, all of the, you know, Bill and Bob have this many Bitcoin, et cetera. And it's running it through that hashing algorithm and it's coming out with that little number or that, that little string and what that string tells you is that if you changed anything in the block in war and peace, for example, in our example, if I removed one of the periods at the end of a sentence, or I changed a capital F to a lowercase f, that hash would be completely different, right? So by doing that with the blocks of, of transactions and getting that little hash, which what it shows you is that, okay, this is, this is a fingerprint of all that's come before us. And it, if you change even one bit in anything that's come before it, this, this hash will change. Now, the magic is this. Once you've hashed that block, you then take that hash, that string of characters, and you stuff it into the next block. And because it's stuffed into that block, when that block gets hashed, if you change any anything in that block or part of that hash value, it it disallows every like it it eliminates everything that comes before it. So you're always assured if you're at the very top of that blockchain as you're processing, you're always assured that everything behind you, if anybody changes one little bit, it won't compute, it won't hash when you rehash it back to what you have today. So that's the magic of blockchain. It's, it's an assurance that everything in the database behind you or, or whatever and a file in anything is unaltered. Makes sense. It's a, it's a tough concept, I, but I see how it creates that uniqueness that where that well, scarcity, right? And honestly, I mean, magic is a fine analogy here because when I type an H on my keyboard and H shows up on my screen, I have no idea how that happens either. Yeah, what's going on there? You don't know. <laughs> It could be little gnomes running around in your computer, right? <laughs> I'm assuming it's not, but if it is, I should be nicer to the gnomes. So, yeah. 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 So so that's important for people to understand. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. The can you give a little bit of the background, the history? You've touched on a little bit already, but um around Bitcoin specifically? Yeah. Um, so if and I'm sure one day this will happen. Somebody's gonna make a movie, right? About well, I believe this will happen because Bitcoin will be a big thing. But basically, most people who are kind of into cryptography and whatnot, 
uh, have come to an agreement that the origins of Bitcoin can easily be traced back to a group of eight-ish folks about 20 years ago. And those people um, self-labeled or were later labeled as cypherpunks. So this is, you know, this is back in the late 80s, uh, um, early 90s. Those, those folks um, were passionate people about cryptography. They were passionate people about personal liberty and freedoms. Um, and, you know, maybe even a little bit fringy, right, to, to some. But they loved uh, cryptography and and that's i said cypherpunk and not cyberpunk so it's important to draw the distinction cypher the word cypher coming from the whole cryptographic ciphers and cryptography and and those folks started experimenting with these things that we were talking about earlier so they started experimenting with digital signatures public key uh, you know, they call it asymmetric uh, key encryption. Um, they started experimenting with chains of hashes, these kind of things to actually, they wanted to produce essentially what later was Bitcoin, but they couldn't put them all together in the right order and crack the code. <laughs> so they came up with, um, and uh, I, I don't have the dates and whatnot in front of me, but you know they came up with uh, it was called Zcash, uh, eGold, um, and a number of things that kind of you know got off the ground in a small in a small group of people, but then you know petered out and and whatnot. And it's from these core of people and their uh, exchanges via email and their exchanges on bulletin boards as they were, uh, you know pontificating about a better future, a perfect future without government and without, you know, manipulation of finances um, that that became uh, eventually what was launched as the Bitcoin white paper. And this is this is where the the secret magic happens. I, I don't know if you had it as a question or, or wanted to go there, but everybody talks about who is Satoshi Nakamoto. And that's where Satoshi came in. Um, so Satoshi started interacting uh, via email and collaborating with all of those folks um, during that time. And they only knew him through email or her, whatever, through email. Um, and a lot of people have been speculating that it is one of those eight folks, right? That they sort of made this extra, you know, this, this persona and started exchanging emails amongst them. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. The very, the very first Bitcoin that was ever transacted um, was between Satoshi and one of those people. And again, I'm sorry, his name escapes me right now, but he's been interviewed ad nauseum. You know, everybody thought it was him, right? He was just sending it to himself. Um, but he uh, claims to this day, uh, he has ALS. And so he's deteriorating fairly quickly, but he claims... You know, on, on a stack of Bibles, it's not him. He has no idea who Satoshi is or was. But that's uh, that's kind of how it came to be. And then, you know, Satoshi was part of this group. They were all exchanging emails. They were building. They were collaborating. They were creating. And they launched Bitcoin. Um, and by launch, they became the first, the network where it started. And then as it grew and others participated in the network and whatnot, um, there was a point when the, I think it was the FBI in the States, um, started asking one or two of them some questions about what was 
what this technology was and how it was working. And that was the last that anyone heard of Satoshi. So right around the time that, you know, the federal government in the United States started asking questions about what is this, what's going on, um, he stopped emailing and no one's heard from him since. And yeah, this great mystery surrounds it still. Right? And then, yeah, the mystery. And, you know, so a lot of talk about it. Uh, personally, I think it's been a bit of a boon for Bitcoin because the mystery, you know, gets people involved and then they want to know. But anyone who's into the technology um, is pretty much agrees that it doesn't matter. Um, you know, like, I don't know who Pythagoras was, right? I, I don't care. I don't have to know. I don't have to care. If he, if he was 20 people and then it was just one guy was the spokesperson writing it down, it doesn't matter because the math is sound and and there's nothing hidden there. So whether it was an alien that came down to seed this in, in our culture um, or, or it was one of those original uh, cypherpunks or somebody totally different, it, it doesn't matter. But, but it is a great story. So what about uh, some non-crypto examples of uh, blockchain? Yeah, so that was an interesting question. And I, um, I'm i going to use it to, to go on my rant. <laughs> but you already got a bit of it, so I, I, won't, I won't go all the way through. Um, there aren't a lot. And I'm not convinced, and this is my personal opinion, that outside of cryptocurrencies or crypto assets, um, or, you know, that, that ecosystem, there's a lot of need for it. And b- because it has existed, like I said, the chain of hashes um, has existed as an idea for a long time. Essentially, um, a blockchain is just a database. It is a database that using those hashes um, makes something tamper evident. If, if that makes sense. Like there's, uh, y- things can either be tamper evident, meaning you break a seal and you see that somebody has broken the seal, or they can be tamper proof, meaning that, you know, there's a lock and no one can get in. Um, blockchains make data tamper evident. So anything you go back, even a hundred, you know, to the very first block and, and change a comma, it's evident because the whole blockchain falls apart and it doesn't make sense. So, it doesn't make things tamper-proof. Because let's say I'm a business and I'm building a blockchain for whatever reason. I have a database, a, a, a base of transactions, and I want to keep them in order. And I want to make sure that you know, I'm preserving evidence that certain things have happened one after the other. So blockchains are a good solution to do that, to make it evident to an auditor or to whomever that something has changed, but they don't prevent that change from happening. And more importantly, because they don't, doing that hashing that I explained, um, computationally is not that hard. So if I was a criminal and I broke into a business that was using blockchains to um, you know, make sure that their data was tamper uh, resistant or evident, um, and I had compute power, I, I had my own computer, I could go back to the one of the first blocks, make a transactional change, and then recompute all the hashes all the way up to the current, and then replace the current with my recomputed value. I, I don't know, I may be going too far down into the weeds, but but basically, I could I could go back and change something and then redo all the hashes. Now, I would get a totally different one, but if I replaced 
if I, you know, just swapped it out again, it's digital, right? Because there, there's no, there's nothing physically stopping you from doing it. I swap it out. No one would ever know that I had been back there, right? And done it. So it, it blockchain's uh, value to business, not that high until you marry it with a technology like proof of work. And proof of work means that it's really hard to to build the next block and then really hard to build the next block and really hard. And so by the time you've got enough blocks stacked up, the the difficulty in going back, changing something and then recomputing everything to substitute is just it's um, it's not possible because it's it's too much electricity, it's too much effort, it's too much time. You, you just can't do it. That's when the real magic of what people call blockchain happens. It's, it's not just in those hashes computing, it's in making it hard to do that hashing as well. So that's what I mean about these technologies coming together. Um, when used, you know, solo, yeah, they're interesting. You know, they're a bit of a parlor trick. Combine them, and now you've got something solid. Right. And something new and to some people, something magical. So. <laughs> yeah. Where I've heard about this as a like a non crypto application is supply chain. Right. That's the one that you're suggesting that like tamper evident isn't necessarily that helpful. there. Well, no, I, I think it is. So anywhere that like a supply chain where tamper evidence is helpful, that's where blockchains and, and the idea of, you know, those blocked hashes or hashing hashing computations into blocks, whatever, that's, that's where it is. Um, it is valuable there. So for example, I, like I've heard of um, supply chains for um, frozen goods, you know, to, to make sure that they've never thawed at any point during, <laughs> during their transport or whatnot. Um, so, so that is, is valuable. It's, it's valuable because there's there's not a lot of uh, money to be made. The, you know, there's not a lot of you know this uh, this grocery truck uh, and unthaw everything and then refreeze it and not let anyone know that I've done it. Right. So there's not there's not a lot of criminals people trying to to break if you want that that hash chain. In that case, it's wonderful. Right. It works. And just like a, a light or a, a button that changes color if it gets below zero or above zero or whatever, um, that works. Um, so, so it is valuable in those industries, but it's only you know very specifically applicable, and um, not not as applicable as some people uh, would have you believe when they're trying to sell uh, you know access to their talks or their you know their TED talk or. Their <laughs> <laughs> or they're they're trying to shill a new product, right? We're blockchain this. We add blockchain to our name, and now we're instantly more valuable. Um, you know, those folks who do that, uh, I think, are overinflating the true value of blockchain to businesses. In you know, outside of those very specific applications. Yeah, I've thought about it as useful in supply chain, specifically food, right? Like I can see one day. Uh, blockchain attached. There's a story right now about palm oil and Girl Guide cookies. I can see like a, a slave labor, you know, tag attached to that, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So it, it does give you that chain of custody almost, a provable chain uh, of ownership. But the, the question for a cryptographer becomes, well, how valid is that chain? Like how hard was it to, to forge that chain? Uh, and in, in areas where it, you know, nobody's going to try really hard and it doesn't, 
matter that much, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm not trying to put those down. Then, then yeah, it's absolutely use, usable. Yeah, you're always trying to strike that balance, right? It has to be usable, but it can't be so so soft as to be. Yeah, exactly. You could you could build the gold plated million dollar solution. Um, so what, right? You're saving yourself fifty cents on a on a watermelon, like. <laughs> So you talked about uh, proof of work already. Um, can you talk me through mining, what this means? Yeah, mining um, is another another term that uh, people don't, again, quite understand. And, and it's because, A, this is all new. And B, you know, the word mining was chosen because it's the closest way to represent what's going on. But it's not, uh, it's not completely accurate. So for the layperson... What mining is, is it's essentially a reward, rewarding the person or the computer doing the work of taking all of those transactions in a block and ordering them, you know, in the block and then doing the hashing to create the next block. So that takes a little bit of work to do, but... (laughs) And 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 if if it weren't for mining and if it weren't for proof of work, anyone could do it, right? Just quickly and easily, right? There could be a billion computers running a billion different solutions all the time, and and there would be no value because you'd have no, it, it would all fall apart. So basically, what mining is is the activity, and and this is where people don't get it. You have to separate the activity of doing taking all the transactions that people want to be added to the blockchain and hashing them for the next block. That's one activity and it's a very small computationally to do. Anyone can do it. Your home computer could could basically hash and do the next block in a millisecond, right? That is not hard work. What mining is, is being given the ability to be the one who does that officially right for the blockchain and the way that they earn that right is by doing a whole bunch of hard mathematical computations which at their very base layer are just wild ass guesses trying to achieve a random result (laughs) so there's no way to um, get better at it if that makes sense over time Um, it's really only down to the horsepower, which then translates one layer below to electricity, <laughs> that you're prepared to spend to be the one who finds that answer first amidst all of the other you know, millions of people that are looking for that answer at the exact same time. When you're successful, you, you're making random guess, random guess, random guess, random guess, same as everybody else. When you randomly become the successful guesser, then what you do is you take that successful guess and you advertise to the rest of the world, the rest of the network, I found a solution. My, my, my random guess gave a proper solution to this problem. Everybody here verify that I got it right. And everyone, like that trap door that I explained with hashing, it's very, it goes one way but not the other. Um, it's very simple to validate one of those guesses. You just plug it in and say, does it solve? Yep, it's done. It's a, it's a bill a second in, in computer time to validate. So as soon as that's happened, then the person who found the solution gets to take all the new transactions, drop them in the next block, 
But before they do the hash, they also, and this is in the code, in the code that um, runs the Bitcoin network, they are, they're also allowed to add a specific number of Bitcoins for themselves. So, so they basically create a brand new Bitcoin, if you want to call it that, inside the, the new block going forward that only they control. And that's their reward. That's their reward for doing all the hard work of guessing so many billions of times and, and magically winning the lottery and they win. And now they're allowed to give themselves, gift themselves um, these new Bitcoin that are mined into the next block and hashed. And then it becomes the law of the land, if that makes sense. But essentially, I know like if I and I'm not doing this, but if I put my computer to work trying to mine the next Bitcoin, I have a yeah. pretty good idea about how long it's going. It's not so much like like I, I get that you're describing it as winning a lottery, but there's not a ton of uncertainty around this. It's not going to be somewhere between like one and a million seconds. It's going to be a relatively predictable outcome, isn't it? Do I have that right? Yeah. So it is a predictable outcome, but only at the macro level when it comes to um, it's, it's all statistics, right? So um, the macro level so actually, this is another good thing for people to understand. The blockchain updates a new block, people will say every 10 minutes. It's not doing that because every 10 minutes, somebody wins that lottery. It's doing that because the difficulty of the problem everyone is trying to solve is continuously every two weeks or so being tweaked so that the network looks and sees how many people are doing how much guessing and mathematically, the likelihood is that it would take about 10 minutes for somebody to come up with the answer. And if that time starts growing, if, if the average time to mine the next block starts moving to 12 minutes, 13 minutes over that two-week span, then they say, ah, the problem's a little too hard. I'm going to dial it down just a bit. So what they're doing is they're governing um, basically the amount of time between blocks by tweaking the difficulty of the math problem. And they do that. And the reason that they need to do that is because the Bitcoin network, and this is one of its key values, is it's radically open and transparent. And anyone, anyone, anywhere in the world can join and start hashing. So they have no idea how many people are gonna be mining um, tomorrow, next week, when new technologies come out, um, like they, they came out with these chips called ASICs, um, they are basically purpose-built chips to do nothing but mining. And they cut the, they cut the amount of electricity uh, that it takes to make one of those guesses down by a factor of like 20 or maybe probably even more, right? So all of the sudden, the hash power was what they call the amount of guessing that's going on in the network. As those chips started coming online, coming out of the factories, the hash power of the network started growing, right? And so they needed to be able to govern it up and down based on the hash power of the network. And that's, that's again, that's another one of these sort of aha moments where you're like, wow, these people really thought about this, right? Like, um, they've accounted for that. And so if everyone on earth could be mining Bitcoin or four people, two people could be mining Bitcoin, depending on how they tweak that algorithm, it's still going to run every 10 minutes or so. Now, the more people on it, 
So the, the more that there's, if there's say billions of people, the more hash power on the network is what gives it its security. <clears throat> and let me explain that because remember um, in order to generate that next block, to be the one to magically award yourself the new coins, um, you have to you have to make this guess. But the more hash power that's that's out there means that it's harder. The, the harder it is to do that. Now, if you if you look back historically at the blocks that were mined, you know, a day ago, a week ago, ten years ago, um, if you're going to do an end run around the system, like I was describing earlier, where you want to make a change way back there and give yourself magic bitcoins and then and then hash your way to the present and replace everything. And then magically you've, you've, you've gained the system because there was so much hash power at that time. The problem was so difficult to solve. If, if you want to game the system and, and catch up, you have to do all of that hashing again, right? So you, you, by having more people participate in the network, it becomes harder and harder and, and basically impossible um, to recreate the blockchain or, or to go back and make a transformation that you can push forward into the present. And that's why, uh, again, if, if your folks are you know, into this, um, they'll say when, when somebody uh, transacts or gives you a Bitcoin, um, it happens essentially immediately because everyone on the network can see the transaction, but it's not a done deal until it's mined into the, the next block. So that's why it takes about 10 minutes for, for people to say, well, now this, this transaction's a done deal. For people who do this for a living or, or trade in it, they won't consider a transaction final until it's at least three or five blocks old. And so that's, you know, anywhere between 30 minutes and an hour. But what they've done is that whole risk waiting where they've said, now it's so far back and the ability for someone to game the system, or there's another thing that could happen, which is the chain forks, but that's a whole other thing we, we can talk about later. If you're, but for something to happen that is going to reverse my transaction is now mathematically not, no longer possible, right? Because it's far back enough that it's, you just couldn't catch back up. There's essentially enough transactions layered on top of it that it becomes yes. unrewindable. It's unrewindable. And it's unrewindable because of the effort you would need to do all of that hashing to wind it back up. <laughs> so, you talked about they. You said they twist this dial to like go from back. Who is the they in they? Is it an? Well, oh, haven't you heard? It's it's the Illuminati. No, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I I kid. Um, yeah. So that's an that's an excellent question, and it and it cuts. Um, to the heart of what is Bitcoin. So at its core, Bitcoin is essentially uh, an agreed upon um, program for to oversimplify it. It's, it's what, what you'd think of as a program that everybody runs in common. They all run the exact same program and they've all agreed, right? That they're running that program. The 10 minute or the, di the dialing back and forth is built into the program. So the program looks at it every, every, and I say every two weeks, like we talk in 10 minute increments and two week increments to the program, it's number of blocks, number of transactions. So the program doesn't say, oh, it's May 23rd. I'm going to, you know, check this. The program says we've mined a hundred blocks since the last time we did this. Now it's time to true up. 
And then the program runs the algorithm that says, oh, it's a little too hard, right? Because, uh, or it's a little too easy is, is what's happening most of the time because the hashing power keeps increasing. It's too easy. So we need to make the math problem a little bit harder. We add the, the, the new hardness to the math problem. Everybody who's running the same program agrees to it. And then it carries on. So it's built into, it's not a person making these decisions. All of those decisions were made at the genesis. And they were mined into, if you want to call it that, that genesis block when the network started. Um, now, there are, so that, so that kind of gives a problem too. So that's a, that's a blessing and a curse. The, the curse being that you would say, well, once it started, it's hands off. There's nothing I can do. There's no way to course correct. There's no way to add additional function and value and whatnot. And they thought about that as well. So you can change the core Bitcoin pro program protocol. That can be done, but it is done by consensus. And it is done with the consensus of the miners. So the people that are doing the work and expending the electricity and, and, and got all their you know, blood, sweat, and tears into this have to agree. And for major changes, they have to all be in agreement of, I think it's around 75% or 80%, right? So, so you have to have an 80% agreement amongst all of them that this new feature should be implemented or this should be changed. And if you don't get that, nothing changes. And it's, it's really that vote with your feet kind of environment because the way that they achieve that consensus is by um, you know, getting enough folks up to that percentage to, to agree to it. And when they get to that percentage, then they all just change that main program. And because it's the majority, it ripples down. I, I'm oversimplifying, but that, that's kind of how it happens. Okay, uh, lots in there, lots to unpack. And I know we kind of left off at, a, at an awkward juncture, but that was about the halfway point of our conversation. And I couldn't find a better place to uh, break the interview up. So I hope it makes sense. And I hope you come back to part two and hear the rest of what Mike has to say about this. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. 
The number for today's episode is four. The number for today's episode is four. And I completely forgot that we had another two-parter. We had Steve Adang from Anchor Pacific Wealth Management on in season two talking about the outsourced chief investment officer. It'd be interesting to touch base with Steve again and see what he thinks about uh, the recent uh, activity around uh, Bitcoin and maybe for that matter, GameStop as well. I will comment here. Mike and I recorded this interview in early January of 2020 uh, before we had a big run-up in the Bitcoin uh, price. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that run-up and some of the associated news in the uh, attached notes to episode two. I want to take a moment here to talk about my own experiences with uh, Bitcoin. Uh, There's maybe a little bit of psychology here. I do consider myself something of a consumer of financial services products. So I'm not a great financial planning client this way. I buy a lot of things to see how they work, really just to try them out. So maybe four or five years ago, uh, I bought Bitcoin. I remember it was at about 12,000. I guess I could go back and look, but it was at about 12,000 US dollars when I bought it. And I, uh, I wanted to see how a wallet worked. I was not willing to go down the whole path of setting up my own uh, keys to own it or anything like that. So as I mentioned in the interview here, I set up a wallet, uh, transferred just a small amount of money in. Uh, as with any kind of investment like this, I treated it as an entirely speculative investment. I put in money that I was comfortable losing. I chatted with my wife about it beforehand. She was interested in it. And so we put just a small, small amount of money in there. And I, it's gone just fine. I, I guess I'm a hodler by default. Hodl is a hold on for dear life, which is a, a common phrase that we see with cryptocurrency investors. And really, it just means you're waiting until that price goes up. This is what in uh, securities trading used to be called, and I think still is to some extent, but you don't see this done as much anymore. But the greater fool theory, uh, basically, that you would buy something anticipating that one day there will be somebody willing to pay more than you were for that uh, security, they would be the greater fool. So um, we actually, funny thing, recently in the big uh, Bitcoin run-ups, my wife hit me up. She said, hey, what's going on with our Bitcoin? And she had read about it in the news. She's not uh, too keen on paying attention a lot to our finances, as with a lot of couples. This is an area where I end up doing most of the work, although happily, uh, lately, she's become more engaged, and not just because of Bitcoin, just in general. Um, But... Anyways, she asked me about it, and we looked at the uh, price, and we divested some of our Bitcoin, basically uh, did the classic, I guess, Warren Buffett thing and took some profits, and um, and now everything we have sitting in Bitcoin is, at least from a certain way of looking at it, and I know this is a mental accounting trick, but that's okay. Uh, but essentially everything we have left there now is what you might consider uh, free money. Of course, that sort of ignores the time value of money over that last uh, three or four years, however long I've held it. But again, if we just apply inflation over that time, that's not so bad. Even applying a, a rate of return there 
I, I bought it at about 12,000 and sold at about 40,000. That's a pretty solid return on investment. And again, not something that I would count on getting over and over again. And now my wife and I are in this kind of back and forth about this that I find interesting where she wants to divest the whole position. And I say, no, why don't we hang on to it for ever and ever effectively? Uh, we'll see what happens here. Um, but I suspect that uh, to some extent, I'll end up losing that argument eventually. And of course, Bitcoin's come down quite a bit since then, although we'll see if it goes to recovery. And uh, any uh, discussion like this is going to be stale dated five minutes after I record it. Thanks very much for joining us for the first then of this two-part series dealing with cryptocurrency. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks when Mike uh, rounds out this discussion. And there we'll talk quite a bit more about the financial planning implications and investment implications of holding this. We'll talk about how people actually own it, which we touch on a little bit here, but Michael delve into that in more detail. And as with this episode, I learned a lot from the second half of our conversation. I hope the same is true for you. There are quite a few people who help out with getting these episodes to air. Joseph Tong takes care of our editing. Maria Nguyen takes care of all of our continuing education approvals. And Sushami Parmalopaket, Ji uh, Lu, Lisa Hoffert, and Penny Watt, my mother, make sure that we have people listening to the podcast through their marketing and sales efforts. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.